Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey gang, it's Reed. Before we get started, if you're listening to this, I want you to do me a favor. If you're a Republican and you have not signed up for the Lincoln Project, go to lincolnproject.us. If you have friends or family who you know that are Republicans who are over what they've seen with Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis and Marjorie Taylor Greene, have them come take a listen. Have them come to hear what a bunch of former Republicans know about politics, feel about the country, and believe we need to do to get us back to a place where a two-party system is functioning and this democracy works for everyone. Go to lincolnproject.us and sign up. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm once again joined by Tom Nichols, staff writer at The Atlantic and a specialist on international security affairs, including Russia, nuclear strategy, and NATO. In addition to his work at The Atlantic, Tom has authored a number of books, including Our Own Worst Enemy and The Death of Expertise, available wherever fine books are sold. And as always, we can't have Tom on the show without once again mentioning that he is a five-time Jeopardy! champion back in the Alex days. Tom, welcome back. Hey, Reed. Thanks for having me. All right. So, Tom, we got a lot going on in this country and overseas, and you are, I think, both politically and from a media perspective, sort of sitting in the middle of a lot of it. So tell me, as you sit in your perch up there in the great New England, are our arrows pointing up? Are they pointing down? Side to side? Where are we? I keep wanting to believe that the fever will break, that Trump has reached his Joe McCarthy moment. I don't think we're there yet. I think we're still kind of side to side. I think we're coming out of a bad time. I mean, even little things. Uh, here, I'll be more optimistic and say the arrow points up a little bit. I noticed for the other day I had to go and do kind of very routine shopping, and house kind of stuff. And it even feels like things like the supply chain crunch is letting up and you know, inflation is down and the snow is melting and all that. But I think politically, we're still in this strange nether world where one of our major political parties has, you know, the center-right party has become completely dysfunctional and doesn't function like a normal political party. That's not over. And I think it's important, Tom, at least from my perspective, it's hard to, I don't want to say it's hard to explain because I, I don't want to condescend, but, you know, the Republican Party is really part of an authoritarian movement. It is its political wing. It has its Tucker Carlson's, it's got its Mark Meadows, it's got its Stephen Miller's. And so it's the sizable wedge and a powerful wedge, but overall part of an authoritarian movement. And I think that's the one thing that so many of our friends and colleagues and people who should know better continue to misunderstand is that Trump is not a politician. He has political power, he has held political office, but he's not in any way conventional which is he sits at the top of an authoritarian movement, at the top of a, you know, an authoritarian vertical. And so trying to explain 
why political gravity doesn't apply to him after almost eight years, Tom, still seems to be beyond the reach of people who should know better. Yeah, he's an authoritarian cult leader, which is why a lot of these things that would ruin ordinary politicians just don't touch him. And I think, in a sense, the media, the Democrats, kind of the normies, I know some people object to that term. It's actually more derogatory toward people like you and me who are obsessed with politics all day. You know, the normals who just live their lives kind of still can't get their arms around, you know, this guy's going to be indicted for evading financial laws, for paying off money to a porn star that he had an affair with while his wife was nursing his new baby. Like one millionth of this would have been the exit from politics for anybody else. But it's not about politics. It's a cult. And I think you're absolutely right. This is an authoritarian movement that is actually smaller than people think it is, but has incredibly high visibility because of Tucker Carlson and Fox News and Newsmax and OAN and other vessels for it. I think that one of the things I always worry about, as you know, I've written about this many times, I worry about complacency. I worry about people saying, ah, you know, is it really that bad? Yes, it really is that bad. It really is that dangerous. We're both old enough to be living through a time that even 20 years ago, we would have thought is completely unimaginable in modern America. Yeah. And I want to talk about the size of the movement because, you know, it is not unusual. In fact, it's probably pretty normal throughout human history that a minority of a population can dominate a majority of a population. Sometimes that's ethnic, sometimes that's political, sometimes it's religious. But the truth is, Tom, is that Let's say that this authoritarian movement represents 10% of Americans. That's 30 million people. I was going to put it closer to 30, but okay. Okay, fine. 90 million people. And many of them are heavily armed. And so when you see a Trump go out and hint at standing up for me, they're doing this to me to get to you, right? We shouldn't underestimate the types of people that Trump and this movement have drawn in to the political process, which are the militia types in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, the types of people that, you know, QAnon has dragged in, which is a very, in its own way, a very violent movement. People who are anarchists, Tom, they are nihilists. They don't believe in any sort of governance. They do believe in violence to achieve an end. And Trump has drawn them through word and deed into our world that you talked about 20 years ago, whether or not it was Waco, Ruby Ridge, Oklahoma City, right? These people were on the fringes after those. And your colleague at The Atlantic this month talks a lot about this. It went underground, but he pulled them back out of the sort of netherworld and placed them right in the middle of American politics and society. I remember when we were able to be shocked by that when Trump first started courting QAnon. We saw well, He's not really going to do that, is he? But what you find with Trump is, especially as he begins to shed more normal people, right? People in 2016 who may have voted for him said, okay, you know, I can't vote for Hillary and I'm going to give him a chance and maybe it's all an act. As those people have walked away, he's had to replace them with, you know, the hot, crazy, extreme. And that's pretty much who are going to be the bitter enders. For this. And, you know, your point about dominating a majority, the problem in our political system is that they are efficiently distributed throughout the states 
in a way that allows them to have a lot disproportionate amount of control over what happens in the House and Senate, especially the Senate, and in the Electoral College. Whereas Democrats tend to be, you know, clustered in very hyper blue cities. You know, some of that is gerrymandering. Some of it is, you know, the usual chicanery that's gone on for a hundred years with drawing districts. But it's also just the result of kind of natural sorting of Americans into urban and rural, you know, moving from the cities to the South when they retire. So you get Florida becoming more older and conservative over time. But that's, again, that's a really dangerous problem because it magnifies the effect of people who normally would be kind of leavened into a larger political vote, into a larger electoral outcome every year. That sorting and that concentrating is something that Trump knows about. You're a political strategist, you know this. In 2016, what Bannon and Conway, you know, the campaign manager, they actually figured out you don't have to win a national majority. You have to pick off the right people in these efficiently distributed states in the Electoral College. And it worked. So let me ask you this, because you are an expert on expertise, I guess. You're a former professor, well-read, well-thought. And another of your Atlantic colleagues, Bart Gelman, wrote a piece uh, at the beginning of last year about January 6th, and he had some research from a guy named Bob Pape, I believe, out of the University of Chicago. And what was surprising and concerning to them was that the radicalization that was occurring in the American right was not amongst 18-year-old white guys with no economic opportunity, but frankly, you know, Tom, guys like me, professionals, suburban white guys, and there was this predominance that they were living in congressional districts that had been very white, very Anglo, and populations of color were moving in, and they were now Biden congressional districts. From your perspective, and this is maybe an unfair question, if you are educated, if you're successful, if you otherwise should know better, if you should otherwise know the difference between reality and the fiction that Tucker and Jesse Waters and OANN and everybody else put out, like what's the switch that goes off in my cohort's brain? Yeah, I'm going to kind of go deep and spiritual and psychological here for a minute. But first, I'm going to say, yes, there is a lot of great stuff being done at the Atlantic these days. And um, Adrian LaFrance's piece on extremism is our cover story this month. And I really recommend that people should absolutely read it. And uh, Bart's piece about the extremist, actually, small world, I worked with Bob Pape many years ago. And I think what Bob did that I think needed to be done that exploded this stereotype, this myth, is the left behind people. Here's a simple question. Let's find out who they are. Let's stop assuming who they are. Now, that still leaves your question, Reed, about, you know, what is it about a, a middle-aged realtor who charters a jet to go to Washington? I do think that the racial anxiety issue is significant. I mean, it's a, it was a really interesting kind of cross-tab there to find out that the people that were coming to January 6th were from districts that had a lot of change in racial composition. But I think there's something deeper and a little more spiritual, kind of a more disturbing spiritual thing going on. I wrote a book called Our Own Worst Enemy. And what I think after, you know, wrestling with this and researching for a couple of years, this is a kind of a mushy psychological explanation. But I really think that we have reached this point of affluence and boredom, where otherwise successful people say, you know, I have a house, I sent my kids to college, but yet I have this 
kind of rumbling feeling of inadequacy or insecurity. And, and a lot of that's pinged by racial change. I'll try and get arms around it with a story I know I, I told in the book, and I've told in a few times when I've talked about this, about a personal friend of mine who has since passed away. And this is a guy who's a working guy, had a high school diploma, a house, sent kids to college, had a boat. I mean, he was living a pretty good life. And I said to him, what is it that's making, he said, things just have to change. You don't understand. And finally, because we were in a way that you can only talk to a guy that you've known since you were like seven, I said, you want it to be 1966 again, and our neighborhood is all white, and there's a diner on the corner, and the local barber shop, and the drugstore, and we were kids. So they want Mayberry. It's a Mayberry desire. But the thing was, our hometown was never Mayberry. I mean, that's a very romanticized I mean, I grew up in a kind of gritty factory town, and you know there were a lot of ugly stories underneath the barber shop and the diner and the bar and the drugstore. I mean, there was a lot of nasty stuff about alcohol and spousal abuse and all that stuff. And you could just see it. It's like, I'm in my 50s, and the barber shop is a Spanish church, and I just hate it. I hate all this. And I think that there is this kind of restlessness and search for meaning. I mean, these people put on costumes. They dressed like George Washington. They said, this is going to be the most interesting thing I will ever do in my life. And I think we really have to confront that. Um, Francis Fukuyama, who I should have credited more when I wrote Our Own Worst Enemy, because I think he called it back in the early 90s. He said, once we have a kind of affluent liberal order, the boredom could well drive the citizens of that order to find a new cause to rebel against. And what they will rebel against is that order itself, because there's nothing else. There's no other cause. And I think that's a big part of what you're seeing now. And I'll just add one of the, you asked in your cohort, sort of well-off, middle-aged white people. You know the other thing about this? You have to have the money to be able to do this. It's not cheap to be an insurrectionist in DC. These guys are all hanging at the Willard. Right, and we're in thousands of dollars of battle rattle and everything else. So that's a good segue. Let's let's talk a little bit about Trump and this impending indictment as as we're recording this on on Tuesday. We think maybe it's tomorrow. Who knows? But I want to talk about Fox News, Tom, because yesterday there was a clip of Jesse Waters on The Five, which is the most popular show on that network. It's like five million people an afternoon. And Jesse Waters says they're indicting my president. He represents 74 million Americans. If they put him in jail, they put 74 million votes in jail with him. Now, remember that Fox has not said a lot of bad things about Trump. I think that's an important distinction. But they have been very circumspect about saying anything good about him either, because maybe they love Ron DeSantis or whatever. I posit, Tom, that they're doing that because they know that's where their viewers are, not necessarily because Rupert or Lachlan Murdoch have any real love for Donald Trump. I mean, I think the shamefulness of what happens at Fox, and this is where I'm going to, by the way, raise my hand, as I know you probably would. I was a Fox viewer for a long time. I used to watch the five back, you know, we're talking, what, 10, 15 years ago when it had, you know, um, Bob Beckel. And I thought the five was kind of a pleasant afternoon hour. And well, I think you're right, though. I think they've said this is where the money is. And people that you would think would know better, Dana Perino sitting right next to Jesse Waters, you know, all nodding 
you know, all of them having these awkward silences while Gutfeld says something, you know, completely toxic and silly. It's like watching Network, the old movie Network, where, you know, it went from being an interesting kind of commentary to a carnival. And I don't think it's because there's any, I know, and this makes me crazy, you know, it's, well, they're being paid by the Russians and they're being, they're doing, no, they're doing it because that's how you stay on TV. Jesse Waters draws a big paycheck to be on television and he enjoys it, just like Tucker Carlson, who doesn't even need the money. It is, I will say anything I have to say. Carlson, you know, there's a recent profile, I think it was in the Times, about how Carlson basically said what happened to him at MSNBC and CNN was never going to happen again. He was never going to get fired again. And if just serving up buckets of hot crazy is how he gets to sit in front of that camera every night, that's what he's going to do. But I think that there's an immense irresponsibility here. There should come a point where somehow you should walk off camera and say, you know, there are things I just shouldn't say. There are things I shouldn't do. And you would certainly think that, again, people like, I keep looking at Dana Perino and saying, this woman worked for the Bush administration, you know. Listen, we were buddies for a long time. We were friends for a long time. Yeah. You know, how do you not walk off that set and say, wow, I did some really bad things to the United States today. And I don't know how they do it. I mean, look, I grew up in Northern Virginia, right? My dad worked on Capitol Hill. My mom worked at the transportation department, all this other stuff. And at Haycock Elementary School in Falls Church, Virginia, I mean, for the 1980s, Tom, I had a very diverse class. We had white kids. We had black kids. We had Latinos. We had kids that were congressmen's kids. We had diplomats' kids. All the way through my high school experience, right, this was not an unusual thing. Then I moved to Dallas, and I went to a private high school, and I was shocked. And I, as a high school editor, I wrote two pieces that got me in a lot of trouble. The first one was why racism is bad. And the second one was why the Second Amendment, this is 1994, mind you, why the Second Amendment was not meant for assault weapons. And I got in more trouble for the gun thing than I did for the racial thing. But, you know, my guess is that a lot of those guys that were mad at me then are probably more mad at me now. Yeah, there's this weird attachment of a generic anxiety and a kind of generic sense of lost meaning to things like guns. Go back to Thomas Frank's classic book, What's the Matter with Kansas, right? And he's talking to a guy in Kansas. This is in the early 90s, late 80s. And this activist says, absolutely, we're trying to push these hot buttons about abortion because people don't care about tax rates. I mean, basically, the guy was admitting, yeah, things are basically okay, and we can't get people really mad enough to support issues that we care about. So we just hammer on, you know, abortion, we hammer on guns, we hammer on all this other stuff. I mean, I sometimes wonder if the country is going through, at least a part of the country, part of the Republican Party is going through this gigantic midlife crisis, because it seems to be something that is heavily concentrated men in their 40s and 50s. Uh, I mean, that's, I know that's too simple. Look, an explanation. you used to do what my dad did. He bought a freaking sports car when he turned 40. He drove around in his convertible right? Hey, I just retired last year and I bought a new car. Let's take it easy on that stuff. <laughs> but I think there is something to this notion that I feel adrift. I don't have a big cause. And I think, and here's where the culture comes into it. We are a culture now that despises ordinariness, that if you just live your life, I get up every morning, I feed my cat, I kiss my wife, I have a cup of coffee, I sit here, I talk to you. 
there are people who are like, no, I have to be a Marvel superhero. I can't just be involved in my community. I can't just be a good husband. I can't just be good at my job. I am crashing through a gigantic child murder Satanist conspiracy. You know, it reminds me of the, the satanic panic back in the early 80s, which was, again, an expression of parents, of the, that first generation of parents who had to leave children in daycare. It was like this giant outpouring of national anxiety. Listen, man, you're talking to a proud latchkey kid. I get it. Oh, yeah. I mean, we just yesterday on social media, you know, we were all talking. We had a big, long conversation about all the stupid, incredibly dangerous things, you know, that we did as children. Sure. In my case, and I'm sure in your case, often involving fireworks. Oh, are you kidding me? Come on. There was a floodplain near my house. We blew up everything. Right. If the firecracker fit, you exploded it. And then in the 80s, you start leaving kids in daycare. And this causes this national anxiety attack. And I think we're having something similar to that. We're having this kind of national attack of ennui and resentment and aimlessness. And now we're attaching it to these big conspiracies. And the difference now is that there is an entire industry in places like, again, like Fox News, that just services that and monetizes it and commercializes it in a way that didn't exist, you know, back in the 70s or the 80s. And I think Trump and the, this authoritarian populism have tapped into this huge amount of boredom and aimlessness that has gripped people. And that's why they fall down internet rabbit holes, they, you know, YouTube, all of that stuff, because it makes life more interesting. Well, no, think about it. If you go to... I've never been inside a Trump rally because I don't, I'm not that suicidal. But if you go outside at a Trump event, at a Trump rally, it's a carnival. It's a show. You know, they play ridiculous music at his rallies, right? YMCA, for example. And he does a ridiculous dance to it. If Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, Mike Pompeo, Mike Pence, if any of them did that, they'd be like, is that person having a fit of some kind? What's wrong with them? Right. But he does it and they go bananas for it. Right. It's not the same thing. Trump is like the externalized id of a lot of these people who are like, what's the saying? You know, for six years, we've been saying he is who they would be if they had his money. But I think it's more than that. It creates conflict with other people that then becomes kind of emotionally sustaining. And it lets them drain emotional energy out of other people. That's, you know, I, I've been telling people for the past few years, they say, well, how do I talk to, you know, my Trump or friend? How do I talk to my dad? And I say, don't engage. This is the one thing that I think is really important because I think when you and I were running around trying to convince people not to do stuff like this in 2016, we still thought there is an endpoint to these arguments. We will agree. We will disagree. This is just like constantly for a lot of these people, these arguments are just a way of constantly drawing energy of off of other people to recharge their own batteries. There is no endpoint to it because it's designed not to. And I think you'll find that the thing that makes Trump and his supporters the angriest, the thing that is guaranteed to generate fury among them is to say, okay, fine, whatever. I understand your view. I don't want to talk to you about this. That is the ultimate betrayal to somebody who is part of the Trump cult, because I think part of the reason they're in it is to generate opposition from other people. That's why these guys didn't leave Twitter and Facebook and go to Truth Social. They want to be around people that they can annoy. They don't really want to talk to each other. Right.
So let's talk about that because there's a fair amount of cognitive dissonance that these people walk around with. So let's talk about something that you have deep experience with, which is Russia. And so there's at least a slice of them, Tucker, Trump. Now I think it's performative, but he said it, Ron DeSantis, who, you know, Ukraine's not in our national security interests, right? But these are people, Tom, who also believe that the Chai comes, the Chinese Communist Party, the Chinese are public enemy number one. Now, they see Putin and Xi together in Moscow with all the guys doing the weird salutes and the, you know, everything else. We're dear friends. So now it's like, well, if you're a friend of Putin, you're a friend of Xi, too. How does that work? And I don't know that they'd be able to tell you other than like, it's not the same thing. You are asking for intellectual consistency from people who have the political attention span of a goldfish. They don't care about that. They All they care about is whether you are mad about it. You know, now with people like Carlson, I think Carlson's an interesting case. That's why I thought that profile of him a little while back was interesting. He's an interesting case because it is, it's like validation. I've never kind of made it into the intellectual circle I want to be in. I think that's the other thing people need to understand about a lot of the right-wing commentary sphere. They claim to hate the culture, but in fact, they spent many years trying to be a part of it. Remember that Tucker emailed Bo Biden for help getting his kid into Georgetown. This is not like, hey, Bob, I need your help getting my kid into community college. As I always say, Reed, you'll know that Fox is serious about connecting to the common man when they move out of New York and they open their new headquarters in Kansas City or Omaha, you know, and all their staff has to go with them and live the heartland life, which none of them will ever do. But I think with the kind of rank and file Republicans, most of them are actually still hanging on and understanding the stakes in, in Ukraine. But propaganda, this drumbeat of propaganda from Fox is having an effect. But I think, again, it's I define myself as against whatever somebody else is doing. And with Putin, it's easy to blend that into the resentment narrative. He's a white Christian chauvinist. You know, he hated seeing trans people on Eurovision. They think Putin's got everybody in their place. But then he goes and he hangs out with Xi. And what's, I can guarantee you what the narrative would be. Well, he had to do it. He was forced to do it. We've put him in that corner. There is no logical line of argument. And yet, for those of us who thought, you know, we joined the party of Ronald Reagan, to see this kind of abject groveling to the Kremlin, which I think right now is, you know, vastly more dangerous to international order than the Chinese. And I will say it's not because the Chinese are good guys, but I think the Chinese have a much bigger stake in the status quo right now, economically, if nothing else. It's really something. And it's amazing to watch Governor DeSantis betray Congressman DeSantis, who had very different opinions about Ukraine. But again, it's all about pandering to the base at this point. The one thing I do want to lean back on your expertise one more time, which is, and you talk about the pandering, which is this whole idea of like, well, we can't take Russia on because they're nuclear armed and we're just waiting for World War III. I mean, Tom, you are a nuclear expert. You are a Soviet expert. We stood up to these people for 40 freaking years. Like we knew that they had nukes pointed at us. For God's sake, they had them in Cuba in 1962, right? So like it's fascinating to see now these guys who are like the, pardon my French, the fuck your feelings crowds are like, oh, Russia has nukes. We shouldn't be mean to them. I think the part of the problem here is that this argument has devolved, as all arguments in America do now, into silly extremes. You know, we started off with, let's ride in on a no-fly zone and start, you know, having NATO pilots blasting Russians out of the sky. That would have been bad. But I think the other 
is, well, let's just leave Russia alone. We have no real issues with them. There's nothing really at stake here, and they have nuclear weapons. My argument from the first day of this war has been when you have two nuclear armed superpowers, well, two nuclear armed powers, one of them a former superpower, you have to be careful. You have to calibrate your responses. You have to be careful what you say in public. You may remember, buddy, a year ago, I went after Joe Biden when Biden said, oh, God, this guy's got to go. You know, and I was like, I understand, Mr. President, if you want to kind of rant that in the Oval Office to your aides, you probably don't say it in public, you know, while there are hostilities going on in Europe and you have to keep a coalition together. So I think that that whole issue of nuclear weapons is real, not because I think anyone would intentionally use them, but because I think Putin is a terrible strategist and basically not very bright. This is a guy who developed a reputation as being the chess playing, ice cold KGB guy, when in fact, He's a moderately clever thug, and you don't want him to do something that sets in motion a chain of events that he himself cannot control. That's what I always worry about. I don't worry that Putin's going to say, I've had enough of you people. It's go time, kids. I worry that he says, let's play this card out of the pack. And then, you know, a day later, he's going, oh, crap. That's not what I meant. But I mean, isn't that sort of Trumpy too, which is if you go back to Mary Trump's first book about her uncle. She talks about the idea that he would walk into his elementary school and do the most outrageous thing he could think of, and nobody ever said stop. They just stood there with their mouths agape, and he's done it for nearly 80 freaking years, Tom, and that's one of those things where, again, throughout history, if you allow a bully to be a bully, they will be a bigger and bigger bully. Trump is different from Putin in one way. Putin is, faces real consequences. He is losing this war. His inner circle is, you know, pretty shaky at this point. He worries about, you know, public dissent, and I'm sure he worries about, you know, whether people around him are plotting against him. The thing about Trump, and in a way, what Trump has always had going for him is that he is such a colossal ignoramus that no one takes him seriously. You know, Trump walks in and does kind of the political equivalent of, you know, dropping his pants and everybody goes, ah, well, you know, what are you going to do? The guy's a little off. People get mad at me and say, stop amplifying Trump. I'm like, no, I want to put everything Trump does right in your face every day so that you can't wish it away, so that you can't say, eh, what are you going to do? You know, like that's the national response to Donald Trump. It's like, eh, what are you going to do? No, every day, as long as this guy is a presence in our politics, as long as he's the front runner for the Republican nomination for president and a likely 50-50 shot at this point, winner to return to the White House, you should get up every morning and say, here is what this, you know, sociopathic ignoramus did today. And you should confront it because the other thing, as you well know, talking to people who support Trump, if you say, look, he just did this or he said that and they say, well, I didn't see that. It's interesting you bring that particular piece up because Rick and I tell this story of probably late 2018 throughout 2019, Tom, we would get invited to these meetings of very thoughtful, solid, old-line Republicans. And they thought at that time, even two-plus years into his presidency, two-ish years into his presidency, that somehow you could separate him from the GOP. If we could just get rid of him, we'd get our party back. I always said, probably not graciously, even if you did, why would you think anybody would want you to run it? But that's neither here nor there. But they would say, oh, you know, we have to make him look like a loser. We have to take him on on policy, right? He's been bad here. He's been bad there. And Rick and I would say, if you want to beat this guy, you got to be in his face all day, every day. 
and you're going to have to get your hands dirty. And I think back, I don't know if you're a big Andor fan, but I think about the Luthen speech in episode 10, which is a fabulous three minutes of television, if you haven't seen it, which is sometimes you have to use the tools of your enemy against them. And there's a lot of people, Tom, who don't want to confront that reality. They want to look at the trench, but God forbid they'd ever climb down in it. Well, first of all, I'm glad we've both established our towering nerd cred. <laughs> but the problem with beating him on policy is that we live in a post-policy world. No one cares about policy, certainly no one who supports Trump. If you think about every possible Republican issue over the past 40 years, and this is, again, one of those places where I just bristle when people say, well, the Republicans were always like this. I'm sorry, the Republicans were not always the party of big government super enabled executive power, you know, trying to stack judges to get things through courts that we can't get at the ballot box. Those were all accusations we made against our opponents in the 1970s and 80s and 90s, legislating from the bench, activist judges. And so the idea that you're going to win this argument on that, I mean, I think you really need to, to remind a huge swath of the American people, as happened, I think, in 2020. Look, there are a lot of problems in the Democratic Party. I am not a registered Democrat. I'm an unregistered. I'm unhomed. I'm part of the biggest political movement in America, the non-registered voter. But, you know, I am going to keep voting for Democrats because this is irresponsible and dangerous. It's not enough to not be in favor of Trump. You have to actively do things like vote for candidates you might not like in order to literally stop Trump. It's not enough to say, well, I'm going to vote for a third party or I'm going to sit this one out. I'm above this fray. My hands are clean. No, that's how Donald Trump got elected in 2016. And look, I would say this. Rick and I had another conversation with a group and they said, you know, the Democrats are as bad as the Republicans. I said, they are not. And they said, so you support everything Democrats do? I said, I did not say that. I too, Tom, am a registered independent. I said, but we only have one pro-democracy party left in the country and it happens to be the Democrats. And so I fight with the Democrats. And they're like, yeah, but think about when Joe Biden went to Atlanta and, you know, to try and push his voting rights bill. And he called people that were against it, Jim Crow. I'm like, have you lived in the South? Have you lived in the South? Do you know why runoffs exist in the South? Not because they want the black guy to win, right? Because they want the black guy to lose. And so this idea of equivalency is really, really hard, especially, again, amongst people like you and me, Tom, who should know better. And they're like, yeah, but Biden's just as bad. I'm like, he is not. You could say a lot of bad things about him. You could say a lot of things about the Democratic Party. They make us nuts, whatever. But they are not as bad. It is not a true equivalency. It is bullshit that you make up to excuse your behavior. That is exactly where I was going. These are rationalizations to do what you were going to do anyway. I get this you know, Fox's favorite congressperson, Cory Bush, right? They say, well, what about Cory Bush and, you know, birthing people and people with uteruses and, you know, all that. And I'm like, okay, I get it. I too hurt myself rolling my eyes when Cory Bush talks, but I am not worried that Cory Bush is part of a huge movement to subvert the goddamn constitution of the United States. There are always politicians on the edges who say annoying and silly things. But Cori Bush is not Andy Biggs. Cori Bush is not Marjorie Taylor Greene. In fact, let me suggest this to anybody who's listening, saying, well, the Democrats are just as bad as the Republicans. I would argue that one of the things that make Democrats bad at winning elections, the kind of things you and I were talking about, is that they are, in fact, obsessed with process and inclusion 
and policy and all the things that we associate with kind of a normal functioning democracy. And it actually puts them at a disadvantage when they're up against anti-democratic, pro-sedition, pro-insurrection lunatics. And, you know, if the Democrats were just as bad as the Republicans, they'd be winning a lot more elections and ramming things through by fiat the way Trump tried to do. And they just don't. I mean, I think you're right. I think it's just a silly equivalence that is meant to let you off the hook for having to make a hard moral and political decision that you don't want to make. So at those same meetings, I I had this line that I stole from somebody on Twitter years ago. I don't even remember who it is. So I've claimed it as my own now, Tom. And I said, Democrats play chess and Republicans eat the pieces. It's not the same deal. Maybe I'm misattributing it, but I'm going to say that my pal Molly Jongfast, I think, came up with that one. But yes. All right. Then Molly gets all the credit for it. I think it's Molly. If it wasn't, I apologize to whoever created it. But yeah, you know, what do you do when say, well, here, we'll have a debate. I believe in presidential debates. I know they don't resolve much, but I think Americans need to be able to see the person that's going to lead their nation, stand by a podium and say this, I believe, right? What do you do? When you have a debate like Biden and Trump, where Trump is just going on and interrupting and finally, you know, I, I think the best moment of that debate was when Joe Biden tiredly just said, will you shut up, man? I said, okay, that guy should be president. But I think that subverting all of these things, subverting all of these processes is vastly more dangerous than liberals who just want policies that I don't happen to like. And I know you and I have taken a huge amount of steam, all of us in the Never Trump train took a huge amount of steam. You're supporting, yes, a few months back, I wrote a piece where I said, I judge every candidate by does this strengthen or weaken the anti-democratic, anti-constitutional coalition in the Republican Party, which leads me to oppose Republicans on things I might otherwise agree with them on because I don't want the success of that to redound to be more political capital that they will use in trying to destroy the Constitution. Last question for you. Because you've talked about Andy Biggs and you've talked about Trump and we've talked about Santos and Tucker and Marjorie Taylor Greene. But I want I want to go to the I'm going to say the other side of, let's say, the House Republicans, the the Main Street Republicans. Right. The guys who were not last to vote for McCarthy, but first to vote for McCarthy because he's, quote unquote, the normal one. These are the guys who did not vote to impeach Donald Trump a second time. They'll demand credit for certifying Joe Biden's presidency, despite the fact that it was their legal, constitutional, and moral duty. So are they better or worse? Because they claim to be better because they'll vote for infrastructure. But we all know that when the time comes on, whether or not it's Trump's indictment or a debt ceiling or, let's say, funding for Ukraine, they're going to clamp their eyes shut, you know, put their hands over their ears and hope to God the storm passes them by. What do you say to them? Let's think about what their response to this would be. They would say, look, if it weren't for me, you'd get somebody even crazier, right? I would get primaried by a lunatic. They'll say, I'm going to get replaced by a Marjorie Taylor Greene or a Lauren Boebert. So you don't want that. And I'm here to kind of be the guardrails. Well, two things. First of all, they haven't acted as the guardrails. That whole theory went to hell, you know, four or five years ago. And there's a part of me that says, you know what? If you're going to get replaced by a lunatic, let's get on with it. Let's kind of sharpen the contradictions here, to use an old Marxist term, but let's create stark choices for the American people instead of kind of being able to finesse this so that then you end up enabling a Kevin McCarthy, who I think has just sold his soul to these extremists, 
He gets up in the mirror and every morning when he shaves, Mephistopheles is standing behind him. Yeah. And saying, you know, tick tock. At some point I'm going to collect, buddy. But the case of people like Peter Mayer, Adam Kinzinger and others, yeah, they are driven out. But I almost think if this is what this party wants, maybe they should have to live with it and present that to the American people. But I am a tad less judgmental on them simply because I think many of them are stuck in a very bad place. And I will at least give them credit for not going the full, here's a name we haven't used yet, they haven't gone the full Elise Stefanik, who have said, hey, I was a Bush person, I'm a moderate conservative. Oh, no, that doesn't work. Fine. I'm the queen of MAGA lunacy because that's what keeps me eating in good restaurants in Washington. And we should tell our friends at the National Endowment for Democracy, she is still on your board and she should not be. All right, Tom, before we let you get out of here, where can our listeners and viewers today find you online and where can they find your work? I am online on Twitter at Radio Free Tom. One word. I am a staff writer for The Atlantic. And you can catch me at least two times a week writing for the Atlantic Daily. So if you're not an Atlantic subscriber, nonetheless, go and sign up for our newsletter. And I think if you read it enough times, you'll become an Atlantic subscriber so you can read all that other cool stuff. And that's my perch these days. That's where I hang out. Awesome. And as always, gang, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok. Don't tell anybody. At Reed Galen and on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Tom Nichols, thanks for joining me. And everybody else, we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode.